Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, I have an amazing guest, Monica Ho, the CMO at Sochi is gonna join us. And we're gonna chat about her career and how she managed to adapt to the organization, adapt to the stage that they were at to be the type of marketing leader that was needed. And that's her advice, is you gotta have that go-get-it attitude to adapt to the needs of that company, to, to that exec team. She did that over a great stand at a company called Ground Truth, where they grew, as she talked about, to over 500 people when she was really the first marketer who joined. And that gave her the luxury of being able to decide where does she wanna go next? She talks about finding that fit and finding the right priority for the type of marketer she wanted to be. From there, in the second half, don't leave us, we are gonna hit on localization, how you can start to localize your marketing, whether you're looking at this from a B2C perspective, or you're trying to figure out what we can learn from B2C and infuse that into your B2B strategy, as Monica is doing, to create a more personalized, real genuine experience every time. And a big focus of this is taking those indications from social media. So don't leave us, Tune in for the entire episode. Monica shares some great advice. Here we go, our chat this week. Monica, thanks so much for stopping in. Very excited to hear about your career and how you became CMO at Sochi. Let's dig in there first. How did that opportunity come to you? So I actually found it, Randy. I uh, made a decision that I wanted to be in the Austin market and did a couple of coffee meetups and searching around the the area and came across Sochi. I actually knew the CRO that was in the, the seat at the time and heard about the position and that they were looking for a marketing head and the rest is history. That's so exciting. Now, what stage was that company at? Because I know in your career, you've been at, you know, agencies that probably grew over, you know, a 10 year period. How did you know, as you said, you found it? What was the right stage of a company when you were looking? That's a great question. I I was actually looking for an early stage company. Uh, I've, I've worked for some startups in my career. And I actually got addicted to the pace and the ambiguity of a, of a building startup. So I was looking to jump back into a a company that was building at the time I was the CMO, the global CMO of a company by the name of ground truth out of New York and had scaled that organization globally. Um, and we had, you know, 500 plus employees. And so I was actually looking to get back to that smaller company and build again. And so she was uh, just looking to start fundraising for Series B. And so it was a really exciting time for the company. And I loved what they were doing. So um, it just seemed like a, a perfect fit. That's great. So, so give us some perspective for people listening in and trying to understand that path. You know, you talked about ground truth, joining it, scaling it. How big was the marketing team when you started, left? And then what did you come into again? Sure. So when I started at Ground Truth. The company was actually called XAD before we, rebrand, we, we rebranded it. We were Series A 
I was the first female uh, executive at the company. And I actually came in as a senior director um, to build out the marketing team for that organization. We were rather small. I think we were about 60 employees at the time. And I actually was employee number one in regards to the, the marketing team. I was actually oh, wow. employee 13 officially at the company. And then we scaled it that first year to 60 and then up from there. As I had mentioned, I had, I'd spent about six years in New York building out XAD into Ground Truth. Uh, like I said, it was about 500 plus employees. We were global at the time that I, I decided to move to the Austin market. So I have two teenagers and my husband and I are like, okay, we don't want to raise two teenagers in New York. So that's why Austin. And uh, when I went to Soshi, Soshi, as I mentioned, was just um, looking at raising a Series B round. At the time, I think we were about 40 employees. Now we just closed our Series D. So an 80 million Series D round amid COVID, which is amazing. And we're close to about 200 employees now. Wow. That's that's some amazing growth to experience. And, and I want to take people back because I think a lot of people hear that story of joining a early stage startup, maybe your first time around, as you said, and you know, coming in as that director, but often we hear people either feel like the exec team outgrows that junior director or that individual feels like to get to the C-level, they need to move. Now, people, people won't see this because they're listening to this podcast, but behind you on your wall at home are some very bold words, which are fuck average, be legendary, which I, I'm, I'm loving right now. Tell us about that mindset and how it helped carry you to the C-level. Yeah, I love that. It, it's actually my mantra. I, I really strongly believe in that. And I feel like you have to always kind of push yourself forward. That's kind of been how my career has been. I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, feel like I'm never at the right point to be moving forward. And so I, I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by really, really great mentors that have really kind of pushed me or pulled me along um, into my journey. So when I was uh, at, at XAD, I started as, as that senior director role. You, you made an a interesting comment, Ran, uh, Randy, about the fact that either you get outgrown by the organization or um, you feel like you've got to move around to get to the next level. For me, I actually felt like I had to reinvent myself and what I was doing at every stage of that company. So when the company was at a Series A, I had to be a different kind of marketer, a different kind of leader. I was really kind of, I had to, I had to have a, a lot of dynamic range, meaning I had to be the one to pull the levers and turn the knobs as well as be an effective manager because I was growing a team. When I got to the stages of C, D and, and on up from that, the, the role is completely different. And I think that's where a lot of marketers struggle. They don't realize that at every stage of growth, it's not the same role. You can't get by by doing the same things. You actually have to reinvent yourself. And that's how you continue to, to drive forward. Now, in my case, as I mentioned, this wasn't just an epiphany where I said, oh, we went from A to B. I better think about how I need to be different in my role. Now, I had some, uh, a couple of board members in particular that I was fortunate enough to spend some time with. Uh, Mike Linton, who at the time was the CMO of Farmers Insurance, He's now on to Ancestry. And then John Costello, who was then the CMO of Duncan Brands and is now, I think, doing some other things. Wow. But 
both of them gave me some really great coaching. Um, I was fortunate enough to be asked to, to present in a few board meetings, and uh, they both kind of took me under their wing and told me uh, what I needed to work on. And uh, I took that as feedback, and I just kept moving forward. That's great. It's 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 inspiring, you know, first of all, to have fantastic board members like that to be able to call on and, and get perspective, but it's also impressive to make those jumps. At what point did you, in, in making that evaluation where you wanted to take your career next, as you said, you found Soshi, you, you were looking for this type of role. You very well, from the sounds of it, could have said, all right, I'm, I'm at the Series D growth stage. I want to join a D again. I want to take it to that next level. What part of that was knowing the part that you love versus just a match of a company? How do you think about that in terms of the type of marketer you've enjoyed being at for a certain stage? Yeah, I, I think both are important. I think this knowing what you like to do as a marketer and what you're good at is really important. But then also that that company, that executive team matches is, is, is also important. That was secondary for me. I knew I wanted to get back to early stage. I am a builder. I I get bored with things that are kind of, you know, the same. You kind of get stuck in a rut. And for me, I, I find my motivation, like I had mentioned, in, in ambiguity and learning new things and solving new problems. And I knew that's what I needed. I think I got to a point at Ground Truth where things were, you know, the business was running. As you become a larger company, as I mentioned, your role becomes so different. I felt like I was more of a puppet master, right? I was just up at the top kind of pulling strings, but I wasn't really close to the craft of marketing any longer. And I didn't like that. Um, I think some marketers are incredibly um, successful and they love that, you know, being that, that thought leader and that visionary. I like to do both. I like to be a thought leader and be visionary, but I also, again, like to be very close to the, the craft itself. So as I mentioned, that was a big reason why I was looking for the stage of company um, that I found Sushi in. Uh, I, I really wanted to get back in. Um, the market was changing a lot from a marketing perspective. So as we know, technology is moving so fast. And I felt as I was growing Ground Truth, I got out of the whole uh, trend of account-based marketing I had learned about it. I knew what the, the model, the strategy was, but I never ran account-based marketing myself. Now at Soshi, I'm actually, I, I brought that strategy through with my uh, head of sales and we've been implementing that strategy now for two years, which has been extremely effective. And so um, that's a little bit of background as to, I guess, that journey. I want to dig a little bit more there because I, I, I find that great self-awareness and, and you seem to really know what defines you. One of the things you told me earlier off air was that you're, you're a self-assessed uh, workaholic, uh, which aligns really well with wanting to get some work done versus just pure strategy. What do you think is, is, is a good guide for people who are trying to figure out what work can I still take on without stepping on my team's toes? Because that's the fine line that a CMO often struggles with, which is, well, I don't want to tell my team members not to do the work and all of a sudden do it for them. What is that area that you can carve out naturally or how do you do that? Well, I think it's, it's always about challenging yourself and your team to try new things and to think differently. I think if you're if you're constantly testing and learning, then there's not really a place where you're stepping on toes. You're kind of going into it together. And 
formulating a strategy and deciding as a team, you know, what do we want to do with this? A lot of times what I find with my team is if we are, are setting up a, a new testing and, and learning agenda for the next quarter, um, we'll start with a brainstorm. We'll talk about ideas, what worked, what didn't, what do we want to try? And I love that. I love being part of that. Um, they get to be part of that and kind of guide, you know, what we're going to do next. And then as we're laying out the plan, I'd be, I, I'm pretty careful that I'm not prescriptive. I ask them for their plans first. And then from there, I typically just revise um, and, and provide recommendations before we start implementing um, our plans and strategy. Again, depending on how sophisticated the strategy is, I might be more involved than not, but it just really depends on you know, what we're looking to test, how large is the project, how much are we spending, um, and who I actually have on the team that's running it, how senior are they. Um, I kind of find that I'm a little bit more of a situational uh, leader or manager which means that I, I feel like I'm, I can be very hands-on if I need to be. If I realize that I've got a, a, a marketing team member that's struggling, and I do that in a way where I'm not overshadowing them, but I, I just have a lot more check-ins and touch points with that person versus somebody that I can clearly see as confident, they're a performer, they want to be autonomous, and then I'll have less check-ins. I'll let them kind of run. Um, when I do planning sessions with my team, I never ask for the tactics. I ask for what, what are we trying to achieve? What's the impact you're, you're gunning for? And then at the end of the quarter or whatever our time frame is, I'm going to ask them where they, where they landed. And if I hadn't heard from them since, meaning they never pulled me in, they felt like they were missing something or they were going to be in jeopardy of missing their goal, then that's when I've got to take a little bit of a tougher management position with them. But otherwise, I let people run as far as they need to run or I keep them close if I know they don't have the confidence. That's great. It's a great, a great approach to managing expectations and also managing follow-up, which I, which I think is, are two really important elements of, of leadership. Monica, this has been great. We're going to keep things going. We'll take a short break here, hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be back to talk a little bit more about some of those strategies as we talk about the buyer journey on the flip side. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. bit of advice from Monica that I encourage everyone to explore is find a way to leverage your board of directors. If your team has a board and you've never had exposure there, find an opportunity to either present to them or get one-on-one -on -one time. Your board has a commitment to find ways to help the business. And if your executive team believes in you, they should be finding ways to match you with board directors who have been there and done that. And that perspective allows you to better craft your journey, your approach, and the ways you can help that company succeed in the meantime. 
So Monica, I want to shift to not just the area of marketing that you're excited about, but what Soshi does in the background, which is all around localizing marketing to our needs, to our opportunity, to our search, to the conversations that we have. And I think it's really interesting what, what your company's doing, but I want to just talk about this more philosophically because I think we have so much data now as marketers, it's just we don't know what to do with it, right? And, and I think the opportunity, I always say with content as an example, is if we can show that we can use that data properly to create a better experience, then everyone's going to be happy. What have you seen in terms of ability to do that for marketers? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, Randy. I mean, I think that's kind of, as you mentioned, where Soshi plays. I think we see an incredible opportunity for marketers to leverage this data into real consumer insight and using that insight to build better connections and ultimately conversions with their local community and their target audience. And I think... The best way I can think of that marketers should be leveraging that is tapping into social. That's where conversations and connections are happening. And I mean, it's a marketer's dream. I mean, back 10 years ago, we were surveying everybody, asking, you know, you had to go and ask questions and do a bunch of research to kind of figure out what's going on. Now all you have to do is, is actually be kind of smart about really understanding who your ideal customer is really making sure you know, and then, you know, finding them online or, or making sure they can find you. And it's amazing how open they are in having a conversation with you. I think sometimes marketers are afraid that they open that up and all they're going to get is negativity back. I mean, we see that in the, in the, the place of, you know, now that ratings and reviews are becoming so important. I know a lot of marketers are afraid um, about engage, about engaging there because what, might happen, you know, are they going to, you know, say something bad about me? The reality is, you know, they're not waiting for you to jump in and have a conversation with that, with, with you as a business. If they're feeling a certain way, whether good or bad, they're going to have that conversation without you. And that's going to be online for others to see. So you might as well jump in, really listen to the market. What is going on? What are they interested in about your business or even outside of your business and really use that to make your marketing better? Right. And you talked about content marketing, Randy. I mean, if you just open up your start looking at how people are engaging with you on Facebook or what they're engaging with in terms of the type of content you're posting, that's so insightful. Just look at what they're clicking on, what are they commenting on, and what are they sharing? That gives you already what they're interested in. If you're not getting any engagement back, try something different. So can you give us an example, either your own team or I know you're probably more of a B2B sales process. We hit on ABM earlier, but you know, maybe it's, it's someone you've gone to see execute really well that's been able to say, okay, we're not just going to engage with you on social, but we're going to do so in a more personalized way. Yeah, we've, we've got a, a lot of really great examples. Um, one that just comes to mind because I just did a, a educational series uh, with the director over there is Bar Louie. So Bar Louie, um, it's a restaurant, it's a, a pub, right? They have great drinks, they do happy hours, all kinds of things. They've been extremely impacted by COVID. What's really interesting about Bar Louie though is even though some of their restaurants had to close, they had to modify their service offering, they took it in stride and they really leveraged social and their digital channels to remind their community and their customers that they were there. And whether or not they could come in 
to enjoy that burger or that drink. If, if they couldn't do that inside of a Bar Louis, they would deliver it. They were all offering all of these new services. Um, so when you look at their social and what they're doing, they're having all kinds of conversations with their community. They're talking about the specials, how they're making it easy for uh, that consumer, um, you know, to uh, or their their past patrons to um, still enjoy Bar Louis. I know uh, one of the things that they do well in their social, whether you're inside of a Bar Louis or they just know who you are. They celebrate things that are happening. So they tried to make this kind of a delight and surprise moment in inside of Bar Louis when they they would basically track their feed. And if they see somebody posting a picture celebrating an anniversary or, you know, girls out on, you know, a bachelorette party or whatever, they would come by, they would bring something special to the table. Um, and they would really make that a, a great experience for that patron. And, you know, they would be rewarded and social for that. And they just do a great job of little things like that. That's a really cool example, though, of, of the real in-person world colliding with the digital world in real time, because we, we often think of that social, social communication happening at a very corporate level. But the example you're giving there is it translating down to the individual retail store experience or the individual one-to-one -one experience. Yeah. I think that's where the real connection happens. I think a lot of times brands, especially marketers, you want to control that experience and you want to, you want to make sure you have brand control, which is really important. But I think in, in digital, especially in social, it's really important to allow that connection to happen at the local level. That's when it's really authentic really encouraging your locations to get involved at the local level, understand what's going on inside of their store, get to know their employees and what interesting stories are happening there, get to know their patrons and their customers. I mean, it's amazing. Once you, you see that happen once or twice, it's kind of a snowball effect. I mean, another, another great example um, of a brand is Ace Hardware. So I love that brand because, you know, think about their competitors. You've got Lowe's and Home Depot. And then you've got Ace. And, and what, what's great about Ace is they're known as their local neighborhood, you know, hardware store. And if you've ever gone to any Ace hardware, they're amazing at customer service. The other day, there was a posting from a local retail store um, because one of their associates went outside. One of their uh, customers had a flat tire and he's out there in his red vest changing the tire. That is not his job to change a customer's tire, but he did that. He's being helpful. He's being, you know, great at customer service. And this customer was just so thrilled and posted about it on social media and it went all over the place. I mean, that's the kind of connection and conversation uh, that marketers really should be encouraging their local locations to start having. That's great. So I, I'm going to take this and I'm going to make a big, big, bit of a jump here, if you will. And a lot of our listeners are marketers like you who are B2B marketers. And you hit earlier on ABM. I think there's a lot of parallels with what you're talking about in this one-to-one -one B2C world as to what we're trying to do with ABM. And I'm wondering how you've rallied your team back to leadership, back to setting that. You, know, you talked about working with your sales leader to roll this out. You know, what are some of those parallels and how have you made an ABM engagement just as personalized? Yeah, I think it's it's very similar. So what we've done with our account-based marketing strategy is we've 
taken the time up front to get to know our ICP, our ideal customer profile. And every one of our ideal customers are known, meaning I know their brand. I've done the research on the business. I've, I understand if that business is in good standing or they're struggling. Um, so we do a process that we call blueprinting. And blueprinting the account means you're doing that in-depth research or trying to understand who in the organization might have a need for some of Soshi's solutions. And we do that all up front before we even try to start communicating with that account. Um, because to, to what we just talked about, that one-to-one -one connection, that conversation, it's important that I, I, I come from a place of understanding, right? I'm not just throwing some generic message out there. So when I send a message out or my team does, it's very targeted to that specific brand and something that they might need or might be struggling with. And we try to come at it as a, as a trusted, we try to come at it as an, as an advisor and build that trust to be a trusted advisor um, by educating them, uh, really trying to be a resource before we even try to sell to them, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And it, it, you know, it's making me think as we're trying to converge these two worlds of, of localization in the B2C world to the B2B angle. We talk a lot about social and very few marketers I speak to are finding ways to pull social understanding into that conversation with the account, right? Like we think a lot about leveraging intent data and we think a lot about leveraging any first party data that we've collected over time. How do you and your team, you know, given what you do, kind of embrace what you can learn about these accounts on social yourselves? Yeah, I'll give you a really interesting example. And I, I've seen some other company companies use this. So for social is important because I think intent data and LinkedIn, all of that's great to really understanding the account and, and even one of your, your decision makers, but at the business level. I think when you look at some of the social content that one of your buyers or decision makers might be posting in places like Instagram or Facebook, or, you know, TikTok, who knows? I mean, depending on their age, what they're using, but it's so insightful about who they are, what they're interested in. Like for instance, one of the strategies that um, our team takes is they, they really know of their buying group who are pet lovers. And, you know, one of the things that they do is they, they set up yappy hours where they'll send a package for their dog. They'll send a bottle of wine for them to get on the phone with, with a couple of other marketers and just have a chat about, you know, something going on in the marketplace to, to build that rapport, a connection. Um, and they, they kind of get that engagement because they already knew, wow, this person has a dog, they're a dog lover. I think they'll really respond to this and guess what they do. Um, and again, you can take that even deeper. You don't want to get too creepy with social, right? But I think just doing a, a bit of research, taking a look at recent posts, some of the things that they've put out there publicly that they're willing to share says a lot about somebody's interests and, you know, not being too creepy, but really tapping into interests, really. Absolutely. No, I, I, Monica, you did a great job of turning that full circle from B2C to B2B. The worlds are obviously colliding. We are going to take one more quick break here. We'll hit on one more journey, and that's your personal journey right after this message.
chatting here with Monica, all I can think is, is social now actually getting more strategic? I mean, we've always heard that the social media role is maybe more junior. I've never agreed with that. I think it's always very strategic. But the question is, how do we use those social indicators? And that's what Monica's hitting on. In the next part of our chat, stay tuned because she's going to talk about how you can use this in B2B as well, which is something that we've got to look at is how do we use different indications of actual consumer preference and bring that into our marketing. That's how we make it genuine. And observing the way people want to interact, the way they do interact is the most natural way that we can make something truly personalized. So Monica, you shared with us that you are a workaholic and you know behind you are these bold words, fuck average, be legendary. I mean, that association just means you're on all the time to many people. How do you find the balance though? As you said, you've got a couple of kids, you've got a household, you know, I've seen a dog run behind you as we're recording this. How do you balance all of that? Yeah. I, I and it's so funny. I've had I have conversations like this with with other executives all the time. And I think when you get a little bit later in your career, you realize that the balance is personal. You have to make that balance for yourself. When I was earlier in my career, I kept trying to find a, a company that was going to help me balance my work and my life. But it was the workaholic in me that made me unbalanced. And I never, I have to schedule the time to give myself balance. That might seem odd to some people, but it, it works for me. I'll give you a really quick example. I really like to work out. I like to keep healthy. I usually do Brazilian jiu-jitsu with my family. A bunch of us do it, and I love it, but I can't do that now. So I do yoga three times a week. And every morning on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I have a one-hour block on my calendar in the morning that you cannot schedule a meeting uh, during because I, I need to have that time. I want to have time to get ready and prep for the day. And it, it, because I've scheduled it, it happens. And that's just one example. But for, for folks that are just overscheduled and you're a workaholic, you have to schedule in time for yourself. And that's what works for me. I'd say I, I think that's great advice. People have asked me the same question. And, you know, I've got young, young kids or, you know, they're, they're going into their teens and, and I coach sports for them. And people say, how do you make time for that? And my answer is, well, I, I make that time, right? I, I set that time. And then everything else is going to, you know, slot in before or after that. As long as you set those times, we create balance. And I think that's, that's great guidance for everyone, Monica. Thank you so much for everything you've shared. If you're tuning in to this for the first time here in Monica, check out all of our past episodes with great marketing leaders. Everyone's journey is a little bit different. I'm sure yours is taking its own path. Maybe one day you'll be on here to share it with us. Thanks for tuning in to The Marketer's Journey. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts. 